0: Have you or anyone you know ever been emotionally destroyed by a book?
1: Have you ever got the feels for a fictional character?
0: Have you ever been hungover by an
1: all-night book binge? Then pull up a seat, pour yourself a glass, and hang on to your Kindle. This is Drinking Ink. Hey friends, Brittany here. Before we jump into the episode, I just wanted to drop in with a note on our content. While books are for everyone, this podcast was created for adult audiences only. We advise listener and reader discretion as we will likely delve into difficult and sometimes triggering content often seen in literature such as graphic depictions of violence, frank portrayals of sexuality, discussion of mental illness and existential struggle, and on occasion some downright filthy language. It might be a lot to take in, so if you need a breather, take a break or come back later. We'll be here for you. All right, so welcome back to Drinking Ink, guys. I'm so excited for today's episode. Our guest today is an author with a voracious appetite for books. She'll basically read anything from fiction, research, young adult to the smuttiest of smut. And while her reading tastes are varied, our guest has a very special affinity for the spicy side of life. And the last couple of years, she's found massive success on BookTok with her dark romance, Priest, A Love Story. We are super excited to welcome to the show USA Today best-selling romance author, Sierra Simone. Welcome. Hi, thank you guys so much for
2: having me here. I'm really excited
1: oh man, um, I just finished Priest uh, the other day. And I'm just, I am just, because Becca, I'm like, oh man, I haven't had a chance to read it yet. My TBR so long. And I was, I couldn't put it down. Could not put it down. Obsessed, obsessed. I'm,
2: I'm glad to hear it. I, It's one of those books that uh, writing it was a very seamless process. You know, some books you kind of have to fight to like excavate out of yourself. Uh, and Priest really just flowed write out. Um, and I think part of the reason is that I wrote it before Sierra Simone had published anything. And so I kind of wrote it in this wonderful little void, (laughs) you know, that was like absent of any idea of how readers would perceive it or interpret it. And I really just wrote the book that I wanted to write and I needed to write. And it just came right out as this little heretical pleasure that it is.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, that's awesome. Um, I think it's really interesting that you talk about that as a prior to uh, becoming sort of Sierra Simone. Um, And I guess that leads us into our kind of first question.
0: It's the it's a general author question. So how is it that you got into writing? So like, where did that all begin?
2: Um, So I, I mean, I've always wanted to be a writer, but the kind of writer I've always wanted to be has has changed. And so uh, well, very early on, I wanted to be a nun, but as you can see, that didn't, that didn't work out. Uh, <laughs> but when I finally accepted that, uh, the nun life was not for me, I kind of toyed around with, maybe I want to be a theologian. Maybe I want to be a journalist. Uh, and then I found out how much journalists make. And I was like, oh no, I, I would rather have health insurance. So I, uh, I went to college and got my degree in creative writing Thinking that writing was just going to be like my hobby, like that was just going to be what I did for myself and that my real job was going to be working in libraries and museums, which I did for a long time. Um, I was a public librarian with a stint, like a three year stint at a history museum, but I was writing the whole time and eventually I wrote something that I was like, you know what, I do think I'm going to try to find an agent for this and, and get it sold. And so my first book sold to a New York publisher in 2012, and it was a young adult dystopian book under a different name. And I was pretty young, I was like 24, 25, and I was brand new to publishing. And I was definitely brand new to the idea of like advocating for my own ideas because I am a cancer. And so I'm like, oh, if you (laughs) say that this is bad, then it must be bad. I'll just go crawl into my hole now and die. Uh, Will that make you happy? And so I uh, really hadn't grown any sort of muscles uh, in that sense. And so I found the publishing process to be kind of tricky um, in terms of, you know, steering the book in the way that I wanted, but also in talking about like what I wanted to write next. My publisher and I had very different visions of what should come next. And I really sort of struggled throughout that whole process. And I struggled enough that for the first time in my entire life, I was like, I don't think I like Writing anymore. Like, I don't think I like doing this if this is really what it is. And I had a really good friend who said, I think you just don't like writing what you're writing right now. Like, I think you just don't like this context. Uh, But maybe if you wrote something just for yourself, you would kind of recapture that, you know, something that you didn't have to worry about an agent or a publisher approving. And so, I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna write something just for me." And it turns out that the secret desire of my heart is Jane Eyre fan fiction, but like super uh, erotic Jane Eyre fan fiction. Oh <laughs> yeah, really, yes, the really hot <laughs> fandom of Jane Eyre. <laughs> you see a lot of that on AO3. Uh, and so I uh, I started writing just these little erotic snippets that were inspired by my favorite moments in Jane Eyre and I would send them to my friends. I didn't publish them anywhere. I just sent them to my friends. And my friends were like, "You should turn this into like an original fiction. Like you should take some of these kernels and like turn it into a book." And so I was like, "Yeah, why not?" And so I wrote The Awakening of Ivy Leavold, uh kind of coming out of that like arena. And I wrote it just for myself and let me tell you, even now historical erotica is like a really oh
3: I'm waiting for the, the, I have like the first one in Kindle, but then I'm also waiting for the print. So I'm excited.
2: <laughs> I hope you enjoy it. Mia, for, for the listeners, Mia had just held up one of the Ivy Leibold, uh books. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um,
2: and I had so much fun writing that nasty, nasty Victorian man, uh, Mr. Markham, that I was like, oh, I do love writing. I think I just really like writing. Um when boning is on the table. <laughs> I think <laughs> this has been my calling all along. And so that was sort of how the Sierra Simone name came to be. Because I was like, I'm not gonna bother trying to get an agent to sell this. I don't think publishers are gonna want it. And I'm just gonna start a pen name and throw it up, you know, and then whatever happens, happens. I don't really care because I got what I needed out of this, which was to rediscover why I liked writing. Uh, but I made myself a promise when I made the Sierra Simone pen name. And that promise was that I was never gonna write something that I didn't wanna write, that I was never gonna find myself in a situation where I was trying to please like a group of outside people with ideas that just weren't organic to what I liked to think about. And so that is sort of like kind of a promise that I've kept to myself. So over the seven years that Sierra has been in existence, I've only written things that I really wanna write, which is like a dream
1: job. That is so cool so cool and I find it really interesting that you mentioned journalism as kind of your lead into to the writing world because while I was doing research for this interview, I noticed in your bio that you have um uh, a like or love of Bill Bryson specifically in the audio sphere and I'm very curious as to what that's about.
2: I mean, doesn't everyone love Bill Bryson uh so for anyone who hasn't listened to Bill Bryson, he is an American who's lived abroad in England for like 30 years. um, And he was a journalist for a long time. Uh, And he also wrote a series of really great, um, I don't know what to call it. It's not really narrative nonfiction, but nonfiction books about traveling through uh, England. It's called Notes from a Small Island. He also wrote a really fun one about walking the Appalachian Trail with this absolute mess of a human named Cats. Uh, and gosh, what is that called? A Walk in the Woods, that's what it's called. They made a movie out of it with uh, Robert Redford. Um, and I just find him to be so effortlessly charming and clever, and but also very interested in quirky details, which is kind of how I am as well. And so when he is thinking about a landscape, or history, he's always zooming into these really interesting stories. And I find even when you're writing fiction, having that ability to sort of zoom in when you're writing a setting, for example, if I'm writing a church, right? Like if I'm writing St. Margaret's and the pre-series, like it's kind of hard for a reader to hold the image of an entire big room in their head with all of its details and all of its depth. But if you can kind of zoom in and then be like, well, this is the dusty piano that hasn't been played in 3 months or this is the old confessional that we keep meaning to rip out but there's not the budget for it. It really gives the reader an opportunity to kind of have that cinematic vision in their head without having to strain their imagination to hold an entire thing in their head while they're reading.
1: Yeah, that when you put it in that frame when you and you frame it in that perspective it's it's unique when you find an author who's able to kind of pick out those details and I think that's what makes really good literature stand out like specifically when like there were there were moments in priest that I myself found I was like that is like I was like I did never intended to view something in that particular way and it was whether it was an innocuous or what was something in one of the spicier scenes I found that really super interesting
3: so what are you reading right now just curious to know. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, um, I am reading a book called Before I Let Go by Kennedy Ryan. And it is uh, this <laughs> stunning, I the way it feels to read is it feels like you're reading like a living heartbeat. I mean, it is just Like the prose is gorgeous and these characters Mm -hmm. are so vivid. But basically the premise is that it's a divorced couple who still co-own a restaurant together and they're still co-parenting their children together. And it turns out that there is still a little bit of a spark between them and you know what do you do Mm -hmm. if there's a spark you gotta you gotta (laughs) just one night it you gotta bang it out and then get it out of your system right Mm -hmm. and that always works really well in romances
3: (laughs) (laughs) always oh always so well (laughs) I love those kind of like second chance romances where it's like you had a bad run or like you had a run it went bad and like you get back together I I like it they're just they're so sweet.
2: There's something really powerful, I think, about a second chance romance because you're able to bring so much history to the table with this couple. And I really I have this weird little like kink that I love where I love it where one character has done just something awful to the other character. You know, like they have just done something so crappy that when you start reading it, you're like, there's no way there's no way that you can convince me that these two people are meant to be together and that they're going to be happy and then it's like you know i feel like it's just setting this big challenge on the table and then when mm-hmm. authors pull it off oh it just it feels so good
1: it's the best i love it the payoff is something special for sure
0: yeah so we we've already mentioned ivy Leavold, uh but priest is really a, it's a different genre con- from you know this period romance piece that you did so like where did the idea for priest come from like was it always intended to kind of be a more contemporary set novel? Did you find a struggle when you go from like writing a period novel to contemporary? Like, how how did you make that switch?
2: Well, I think it's very easy if you have a broken brain like I do, because in my brain there was not, um, it didn't actually feel too much like a, like a switch in writerly voice. Uh, even though it is, I mean, objectively it is, and it is a different genre. But for me, the internal pressure to write Priest, by which I mean sort of the the way that I was preoccupied with it, superseded any sort of craft concerns that might've popped up. Uh, And I do think that Priest is like a really perfect example of how a lot of my books come to be, which is that I will have this sort of low key simmer of ideas or themes or images that's always kind of percolating inside me and might percolate for years. And then one thing will happen to just sort of like spark it into existence. Um, And I, (laughs) I don't know if all writers write like this, but that, I mean, that's definitely how it is for me where, you know, I grew up Catholic. I've always been really interested in sort of the dichotomy and Catholicism of here's this really lush romantic religion that's very sensorial. And the fact that you, you hear music and chanting, you smell incense, you move with your body, you consume during a mass, you, you know, you consume the the blood and the flesh of Christ. And so you worship with your body, like your body is the tool with which you worship. Uh, But then you're taught like in Sunday school and in Catholic school that like, bodies are bad. (laughs) Like, don't listen to your body because it only wants to do bad things. And so I, that tension was always like fascinating in addition to being, you know, like hard, right? Like that's a hard tension to sort of live, to live with. And so I was like that idea, that push and pull between sacred and profane between like the carnal and the spiritual has existed inside me for, you know, since I was a kid. And but it wasn't until I was an adult that, you know, I kind of had that lightning spark of an idea. And it started, actually, I went to a panel um, at a convention that no longer exists called Romantic Times, (laughs) R-I-P-R-T, rest in peace. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I went to this panel at RT and there was this great um, conversation at the panel about religion and romance and how come we don't see a whole lot of religion and romance outside of this one category of inspirational. And like how it was kind of strange that, you know, if you actually were falling in love with someone in real life, what they believed about morality, about how they would want to raise their children, like that would be a conversation that would probably, you know, be kind of important to have before you got married. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Kind of need to know, are we doing a baptism? Are we like, what is the situation here? Right? Exactly.
2: Mm -hmm. And so I, and I think even if the conversation goes to, a place of well I'm not sure what I believe or I haven't figured it out or I would you know I would like to play it by ear when we had kids it's still a conversation you would have and so I left that uh, panel feeling really struck by like how much I wanted to see that and it was not an- it wasn't probably just until a few months later that I sat down and I wrote the prologue to Priest just as it is. The prologue to Priest as it is now in 2022 is the same that I wrote in 2014. Um, You know, like I had no idea who this person was. I had no idea who his love interest was. I just knew that this was the story. Like I just sat down and it kind of flowed out of my fingertips. And then the rest of the book kind of followed, followed suit.
3: Yeah, I love that. Um, and and you brought out, you mentioned like that you have a background in Catholicism. Um, did that background have any sway? I, I, I'm guessing it did, but did it have any sway, like in writing the series? Um, and what, if any, conflicts of belief did you have to kind of confront as you were writing? Because I'd imagine when you've been brought up in something and it's so central to your life, there's going to be things that are going to make it harder to write. So, yeah, how did that impact you in that sense?
2: I think the The key moment or the key sort of, um, question for me was that I wanted to interrogate, uh, specifically what it was like to be inside this system. But I did not want to make that interrogation an interrogation of belief in God, if that makes sense. Like, I think if someone comes away from Priest and they're like, Sierra Simone thinks people who believe in God are dumb. (laughs) Like, they did not read the book that I wrote, or they didn't read all the words. Like, the, the point of Priest is that we have to learn how to love and worship God in our own individual ways, and sometimes those ways are not going to match up with what this giant feudal institution wants us to do. And, you know, from my background in Catholicism, I actually chose it as a child. So my family is not Catholic, my family is not religious, um, I went to a Catholic school because the other schools in my neighborhood were kind of dicey. And so my parents sent me to a Catholic school. And as soon as I got there as a kid, I was like, oh, everything about this makes sense. There's a sad naked man hanging in the front of the room. (laughs) Everyone feels guilty (laughs) all the time. Everyone is sad all the time. That makes sense to me. Everything is so pretty. Why wouldn't we make everything pretty? Uh, The saints all made sense. Everything about it lined up with the weird little kid that I was. And so I came home one day um like 6th grade, 7th grade and I said it's been a few years and I've thought about it and I want to convert to Catholicism. And my parents were like, "Okay, I guess." Like, you know, they for them it wasn't much different than signing me up for tennis lessons or something. <laughs> they were like, "Yeah, sure, I guess that's fine." Um and so I I chose Catholicism for myself. And so when I grew up and kind of grew out of Catholicism, so to speak, like I never lost my love for the church or my affection for the church. Mm -hmm. Um, There was just a few things that I was like, I being like a queer person, like it's harder for me to like, stay in an institution that doesn't like people like me dogmatically. But I also think that there are so many queer people who stay inside the church and change it from the inside that I have so much respect. And awe for and so I really have like a ton of love for the church still so I also wanted to make sure that in addition to the book not being like you know God and belief is bad boo because I'm a I'm a very like I'm a very spiritual person too so I'm like no belief is good faith is a good thing it's institutions that aren't the things that don't always work for people but I also wanted to make sure that my affection for the church you know kind of shown through like I love the ritual. I love the tradition. I love the weird little corners of the Catholic faith where there's a friar from Spain in the 1600s that you can pray to if you're scared of flying <laughs> on airplanes. You know, like, I love that stuff. And so I wanted that love to come through the book as well.
1: I I, I think that was really evident. <clears throat> My personal background was uh, I was baptized and raised Roman Catholic. And then I converted to Protestant in my teens and then i too stepped away from the church for um disagreements in terms of the institutional rules and there were like your description that was one thing i found super um what's the right word for it Engaging about your writing was that it never felt like you were dissing the church. It never felt Mm -hmm. like you were talking down about God or from a level of superiority of like God is better than other religions. Like it really did feel like an exploration of sorts.
3: Yeah, I'd have to agree with her as well. Like I'm someone who still regularly attends the Protestant church. And I honestly like I went to it and like, okay, like I had. Uh, like I had no like preconceived ideas about what I was going to be like I just said I'm going to go in here and I am going to read it and see what it's like and honestly it was so beautiful just the fact that the way that you integrated things and like took meanings and and put them together and it was just like for me I felt like it connected so well and yeah it was never there was never a diss against anything which I loved because it was just a beautiful story
0: I'm also the Catholic of the group, <laughs> but that's also one of the things when I try to convince people to read *Priest* after I first read it. Usually, they would kind of notice that it was religious in a way, and they would just instantly be like, "Oh, no!" And I was like, "No, you have to read it." That's one of the things I've touted about it is it, it really puts into focus like religion, which is what most people in society view as like this kind of. Strong arm institution. It has like a negative connotation to it, but then there's also spiritualism, which for me, I think the Bell brothers personally fall under the more spiritualism aspect of it because they're they're two different spheres, really, when you start to look at them more in depth. Um and saying that I'm a Catholic, I actually read Priest back in April on Easter weekend. I didn't think it through. Not only that, but on- Oh, please <laughs> tell her the story, oh, Bella. Tell her the story, <laughs> tell her the story. <laughs> <laughs> On Holy Thursday, I go to the church and I'm standing in the narthex with my husband and the priest comes up and he just brought the new holy oils for the year up from Jackson because I'm in Mississippi. And he's like, will you carry these into the church? And I had just, I had just that day read the holy oil scene and I, I looked him dead in his eye and I'm like, please don't make me do this. So I had to carry in the holy oil. And then on Good Friday, I got doused in holy oil, still like traumatized, not really traumatized, but like the holy oil scene sticks in your head once you read it. That's all I got to say. And my hair smelled like holy oil for four days. I could not get over it. <laughs> You're very immersed.
2: That's like a 4D oh, experience.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I don't know why I didn't think about that beforehand, but considering all that, would, would you personally consider priests to be in that category of like taboo romance? and like why or why not
2: i think so i mean i think i think uh it is objectively a taboo romance if we define taboo as um a genre that pushes like interrogates boundaries i guess uh that's kind of looking for what a happily ever after looks like in the liminal spaces between what's acceptable and what's not uh and so i i'm really drawn to stories where sort of we're kind of pushing the limits of morality, so to speak, where we're kind of, I mean, that's true in Ivy Leibold. It's true, uh, in my Thorn Chapel series and my American Queen series. Like I really like kind of testing the limits of morality and love. Um, but I do think that I, I hope that in the pre-series or any of my other books, that nothing is like, um, a gimmick because i do think that there can be some taboo romances that are sort of using something shocking as like a as a gimmick you know so to speak so it's like here's here it is for shock value you know like i fell in love with my step uncle but then when you get into the book <laughs> there's no depth to the characters and there's no really examining what it means. It's all sort of for that shock value. And so I really think that a successful taboo romance really sort of puts its money where its mouth is and says, okay, like here are these two people and they're really in this situation. Like what complexity and depth is going to come out of these two people in this premise? Um, And I I think that ultimately it probably makes for a, a more engaging read than something that's just, you know, like you know my psychiatrist wants to have sex with me or whatever yeah, <laughs> yeah. oh gosh something a
1: little deeper than surface you know right right so it's like
2: clickbait but for books yes yeah and you know i think that that's true with all it's really true with all romances right like the if you pick up a book because you're like, "All right, a uh, single dad, small town," and then you barely hear anything about the town and you barely see the kid on the page, it doesn't really feel like a single dad, small town. It was just some words that they put in the blurb to get you to buy the book. And so I think that, like, you really want the book to give you what it promised in the beginning.
3: Mm-hmm. And going kind of going off of like that whole idea of of taboo romanticism, so. So your book, Priest, has a content warning in it. Um, so based on that, how do you personally feel about content or trigger warnings? So
2: I I really, you know, my my thinking on this has evolved, and I'm sure it will evolve further. And so, you know, there might be some evolution from what I say today to, you know, in a year or two right now. But I personally have about four things that I really feel like it's important to let readers know um, going in. Uh, And that is uh, talk of suicide or suicidal ideation. Um, That's something that is in my personal history and it's something in my family history. Um, And uh, anything kind of getting close to intimate partner violence, uh, sexual assault, um, or anything that we might put under the umbrella of like a hate crime. And so I, I think that those four arenas are sort of things that it really might be hard for a reader to encounter that uh, in, in, in a pretty decent chunk of readers. And so I want them to be informed. Personally, for me, I like, you know, I have depression and anxiety in my past, for example. I actually really crave narratives that uh, engage with those topics. And so for me, when I see a content warning about that, it's just confirming like, okay, this is a narrative I think that might be good for me, but it does allow me to be like, I'm not sure how the author is going to deal with it. I might brace a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think that there are some things that are a little bit more granular that I, I don't know that it's always an author's job to warn about because it might not be something that it occurs to an author to warn about. So for example, I've seen content warnings for like a dead pet um and like a pet dying on the page mm-hmm. and for me that's something that would not occur to me uh to put in but it might be something that is hard for other people uh which is why i think that's a real service that reviewers can bring to the table
3: mm-hmm.
2: is that you know reviewers can say hey just so you know there is you know discussion of the foster system or something like that mm-hmm. uh that wouldn't necessarily occur to me the other thing that i do try to do is i do try my content warnings um for priest it was difficult because of the way the story is structured but in saint for example i will actually say you know most of this discussion is kind of heavy hitting in chapter whatever and you Mm -hmm. can skip chapter whatever and then kind of infer what's going to happen from later on but it it, (laughs) the reason why this is such a interesting and hard conversation I think is because I write taboo romance so like Mm -hmm. I do write things that are going to push people's boundaries on purpose like I because I am asking challenging questions and so I'm constantly sort of trying to unspool how can I take care of people in a way that's responsible as a storyteller but also be true to myself Mm -hmm. and write like super wacky shit
1: Well, and I think that's fair. I mean, right, like you can't know that something is going to necessarily be triggering, triggering until you're told, right? Like, that's not something that necessarily you're going to know, just through the process. So you make a really good point there about reviewers being kind of um, a stopgap. Yeah, to kind of fill those gaps in when maybe it has been missed or hasn't been mentioned, which is is really cool. And kind of, one of the things that i like i have never really i've just started getting into the the taboo romance sphere and one of the things that really like was the first time i kind of had to like stop for a second and like put the book down and think for a minute was um i believe it was what page 192 and it was while um tyler and poppy it was the altar scene and she it was right after the altar scene where they're having a conversation about how he she was asking him to give her something and he was unwilling or afraid to and they were discussing consent essentially at at its core and one of the things that i like i got major dom vibes from tyler bell like soft dom vibes which i was living for but poppy had said that she felt unbreakable during rough sex and so and i When I read that, I was like, that is such an interesting idea that, you know, it's not the she brings up the context of like, I'm not broken because I like rough sex. I'm not emotionally damaged because I like it rough, you know? So where the idea of presenting this particular kind of kink from a women's perspective as a means to represent them feeling strong as a person, because it's usually something that's shown as a flaw in a woman's psyche, I found extremely interesting. And I just wanted to get your perspective on that.
2: Well, um, <laughs> I think that that is, uh, something that I am really interested in is the sort of, uh, what we conceive of as strength and as, particularly in women. And then also the sort of craving that our culture has to pathologize anything that women crave. And so, you know, <laughs> when a woman craves chocolate, right? There's sort of an immediate conversation about like, well, are you craving it because you're stressed and you're not taking care of yourself and you're not taking care of your body? You know, if you crave, um, I don't know if you revenge procrastinate before bed, then it's a symptom that you're not having a good enough work-life balance. And so there's this sort of urge, I think for us to, contain and categorize what women desire. Um, and, and I would I actually open up to like lots of people, like basically everyone except for cis men, we really want to categorize and contain their desire and make it make sense to us by labeling it. So Clearly, if a woman wants, you know, rough sex, then maybe there's trauma that she hasn't explored. She should go to therapy. She should only want things that are sort of deemed, you know, healthy. Uh, And I think that this conversation kind of runs into some interesting places because a lot of times there's sort of this like, like feminist kind of veneer over that, right? Like a real feminist only has sex with the lights on while she's on top or something. I don't know. (laughs) And uh, and I think that it is, um, it's backlash, right? From centuries of women not being able to have sex on their own terms with agency. And so the backlash is good, right? Like we should constantly be pushing for agency, but what agency means is that then people are allowed to freely choose what gets them off. And those things might not always be politically incorrect or correct. In fact, I think a lot of desires are sort of inherently politically incorrect within a feminist lens. Um, And maybe that is part of culture, but also like, I don't think it's the response of any one person or character to change centuries of bad sex for marginalized people and women. So yeah, I think like, I I always find it kind of, not like a hot button issue but I do feel like there is this interesting sort of moral policing but it's like a sort of but it's for women so that makes it okay you know like it's women telling other women that they shouldn't want this so that makes it okay Mm
3: -hmm.
2: um that's going on I it's yeah I don't know it's not me so I'm like whatever my (laughs) character
1: whatever I want them to (laughs) no that that's a I really appreciate that perspective like I said that scene was like the first time I had to like I had never thought about it like that before and it really I was like wow I I just I really appreciated your perspective
3: Mm -hmm. and I love that your book really has like so many things in it that really get you thinking um especially like so sexual abuse in the church is a hot button topic that can often be triggering if you don't handle it properly or appropriately um and this is one of like the driving factors that leads Tyler to ultimately take the cloth um in this book but it doesn't overpower the narrative in a negative way I found um so like did you find it difficult to strike the balance um between acknowledging the failures of the church and presenting it in fiction from a positive perspective like um because I really appreciated what I like how it was presented but just curious yeah.
2: I think um so clerical sex abuse is one of those things that like you know, you could write a 12 volume nonfiction book on, right? Like it's, it's this huge, it's a huge topic that has hurt thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. And so I knew going into priests that I was writing in, in a contemporary Catholic context. And it was very difficult for me to imagine not addressing that, I guess, or, or pretending it away. And so I don't want to make it sound like addressing it. Like, you know, I have essays in the middle of the book about it, um, but it's part of the environment. It's part of the context. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that I also wanted to, I wanted to kind of, uh, explore around the edges of like, what does it look like to try to make that better from the inside? Mm -hmm. Like who, what would it look like if someone was like, this is bad. And instead of it making me distance myself I want to go make it better. Like I want to be someone who's there making things better and, and standing for my community, especially because in Tyler's situation, it has hurt his family directly. Um, and so I kind of wanted to like, explore that. But I also knew that there was no way that one sexy book <laughs> was going <laughs> yeah. to sort of encompass this giant topic. And so for me, I sort of approached it like, it is as much of the setting as the confessional or the pews or the linoleum basement where they have pancake breakfast. Like it's as much as the setting of as either as either of these, but I wouldn't ask one character to fix the problem entirely. Right. Like Mm -hmm. we can only sort of fix the ground on which we stand, you know, and, all of us, right? Like we are responsible for making our c- corner of the world better. And sometimes we reach for more, right? Like some mm-hmm. people are Greta Thunbergs and they're like, I'm going to save the my corner is the whole world. Yeah. And yeah. for some of us, our corner is running, you know, the PTA at our school. Um, so for Tyler's story in his corner, he is making his corner of the world better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think I also this goes for all genre fiction, but I think if you write genre fiction, you know that you have more than one book inside of you. And that really takes the pressure off in a lot of ways. So Mm -hmm. I think if you're someone who's like, I've got one great American novel inside of me and I, and that's it. Like I got my one magnum opus that I'm going to work on for 15 Mm -hmm. years. And that's all I ever get to say. Uh, there's a lot of pressure on that book. But if you know that you're going to write 20 or 30 books in a lifetime, then it kind of like lets up the pressure. Like if I mm-hmm. find questions in Priest as, as I'm writing, well, then maybe I'll write another book. I'll write Sinner. And then the questions that I find in Sinner, I will explore more in Saint and so on and so forth.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it was really beautiful just how you made it. So it wasn't like beating a dead horse, the whole idea of it, but it was acknowledged enough that it, was present like it was prevalent but not too prevalent which i really appreciated but um i noticed in chapter 24 of the book so Tyler breaks the fourth wall to tell the reader um that he doesn't get over his breakup right away um which is really i found really refreshing um like a refreshing male-centered perspective at like a take on that um and so how difficult was this to write it like being a female writer um writing from a male-centered perspective like like how was it to try to internally or externalize this internal struggle that so many have?
2: Yeah, I, um, well, from like a nerdy uh, academic perspective, I do think that typically um, it is easier for people from like a non-dominant position of power in a culture to write to the dominant voice. So like most of us going to school, we had to read literature written by men. We had to, you know, Watch men talk about things, and so you're just sort of presented with the the male voice as sort of the default voice. Um, and I think it's very easy to like write to that because we've been sort of given that as like this is the human default voice. <laughs> it's a man trying to hunt down a whale, and so you're you know you kind of uh, accept that into your psyche without even knowing it. Um, but also, I think because all of my characters are so distinctly angsty (laughs) and I am a very angsty person, it's usually a pretty natural, um, jump for me into their heads. And so really what I'm watching out for, um, is not like I've seen some men writers, contemporary men writers, you know, say, well, when women write men, they write them thinking too much and stuff like that. And I'm like, that's fine that you think that I, think that men also think thoughts, but (laughs) hot take. Um, But also that's like, my character is this character. Like Tyler isn't this person. He is Tyler and Tyler does have a lot of internal kind of monologue as he's Sorry. That was my watch. I was like, (laughs) I'm not sure. (laughs) Um, And so really what I tried to watch out for though, was um, just trying to make his his journey really directly rooted into his experience and not sort of like um uh like the fantasy of a romance hero experience right where like a lot of romance heroes are sort of you know these impenetrable billionaires and you know they are very stoic and they have all sorts of you know like They can be kind of rigid and they have to be broken down with love over time.
3: Mm, Yeah.
2: (laughs) And so I really wanted to make sure that Tyler was Tyler and that even though he is sort of a soft dom, soft top, you know, stern brunch daddy, as Andy Christopher might say, (laughs) um, but (laughs) he was as um, complex and cerebral and sensitive as someone in his situation would be someone who... Mm -hmm saw had something bad happen to them and then say well the answer is to pledge my life to god like that's not every kind of person and so i wanted to make sure it was specific to tyler
3: yeah i loved it like there's so many moments when tyler just had me like wanting to just like so like i love this i love this man i love this character it was great
0: you talked about how priest kind of started as an idea that just like flowed out of you and well, when you were writing it, was there ever an intent to have Sinner and Saint, or was it those questions popping up during the writing of Priest or like during your review and editing of Priest that kind of spurred on the idea to also go ahead and write Sinner and Saint? Like, was it intended to be a standalone? Was it always going to be this series?
2: It was definitely going to be a standalone. And in fact, that caused me no end of problems when I started writing Sinner a few years later. So I wrote priest and it was just getting this sort of standalone thing. It was just in a bubble. Uh, and then I wrote the follow-up novella Midnight Mass because I really liked these characters. And it was after I finished writing Midnight Mass that I noticed that I hadn't closed the tab in my brain entirely. So a lot of times I'll write something and then I'm done writing it and then my brain is like, okay, we're done with that idea. we're done with that theme. we're done with this world. like we can close out that tab but this tab kind of kept staying open. Like I was still thinking more about God and belief and sex and how everything kind of wove together, which makes sense. Now that I'm looking back, like obviously it takes more than one book probably to like explore that question. (laughs) Um, And so I was like, you know, I think I want to go back, but I'm, I think Tyler and Poppy, like I've left them in a good place. And so I think it should, I'm going to write a book about his brother. So I went back to priest and I was like, okay, here's the brother on the page. What did I say about him? Okay. He's tall and he's a billionaire and he likes strippers. Great. Like, <laughs> very now, deep. <laughs> yeah. Very deep. So I just have this dirt bag that I have to write like a whole book about how am I going to write about this dirt bag? And it actually ended up being really like, even though it was such a headache at first, cause I was like, I, I don't know how I can turn this dirt bag into a hero. It helped me conceive of the way that I write almost all of my characters now, which is that I will think of two points, like two data points about their character that are as far apart as I can make them. So in Sean Bell's case, it's he is a dirtbag who likes strippers. That's one data point. (laughs) And then the other data point is that he reads romance novels aloud to his mom while she's getting chemotherapy infusions at the hospital. And he's actually sort of started this informal book club where all the people in the infusion room (laughs) every Thursday, you know, every third Thursday or whatever, listen to him reading romance novels aloud. So we have our, you know, like strippers, started a book club with his mom and is like a total mama's boy. And so then I take these two data points that are so far apart and I start trying to map the area in between. How can these two really, really different things come out of the same character? How can I make it all like make sense? And I find through that process of mapping that I am able to sort of cartograph a character that I'm really interested in that is pretty three-dimensional and complex because he's not, you know, if you take any writing class, the first thing they'll tell you is that your characters have to behave consistently, that they have to be consistent people. But real people aren't actually that (laughs) consistent. Consistent? (laughs) Yeah. And so it's interesting to me to try to find The layers of a person that would allow them to act inconsistently, but it's still all coming from the same person, believably.
1: That was, yeah, that's a super interesting way to like frame the character. And I guess in terms of like a narrative structure, too, it kind of helps you maybe build and structure how that character is maybe going to progress and grow over the course of whatever the arc of your story is going to be. And I found that it was really interesting when you start Priest. Tyler is in one place, and when you end priest, he's in a completely different place from an emotional point, from a spiritual point, all of it, and what I found really refreshing was that it's a happily ever after, but it doesn't end like most happily ever afters do um you know in a traditional romance you have like couple comes together they have a nice little time couple breaks up they have their own separate time and then couple comes back together because someone is back trying to win the other person back through their wrongs where what you see in priest is that you know poppy and tyler bell go their separate ways and then tyler spends a lot of time doing introspective the doing the inner work you know, to heal himself. So when he goes to find Poppy again, it's not because he's going to try and win her back and get her back because he has decided that she's the only one for him. He's really going for closure so that he can finish healing and move on, which I thought was a really interesting subversion on the traditional happily ever after. What inspired that for you?
2: You know, I really think it was just a a natural evolution of what Tyler would want because Tyler... A lot of his growth is sort of accepting that this path that he chose, which is a very rigid kind of path, does not actually match the path that he needs to take. And so to me, it made sense that his final step would also be bespoke to him, right? Like, so he's building this life and this future and a, and a spirituality like in his belief in God that is bespoke to him. He's not going to be a priest, but he still is going to serve his God the way that he needs, but it's going to look different. And it's going to look like, you know, tailored to him. And I think that I wanted the ending to kind of reflect that too. It's very tailored specifically to who Tyler and Poppy are. Um, But I also think that Tyler is just such a like, good person, which is funny to say about someone who like bangs someone on his altar, but like he is a <laughs> generally like genuinely good person, very moral. And for him, forgiveness and honesty and transparency was always going to be before any sort of selfish need to like reclaim someone.
1: Yeah, well, and I feel like going back to that consistency point, it felt very consistent with what we have seen Tyler do over the book, right? Like that that internal monologue that introspection that that reflection piece has always been a part of who he was so i was i was not i was surprised because it was an interesting take on the on the ending but i wasn't surprised that he was the one that was doing it because it just felt right now on the topic of consistency this is we're a little we're a little confused because in priest there are four bell brothers and we only have three bell brother books what happened to ryan (laughs) ryan's on the docket
2: all right the baby bell he's on the docket um so yes so there is priest that's tyler there is center that's sean bell he's the oldest he's sort of the you know the the dad's still around but he's sort of the patriarch he's like the bossy older brother um and then there's aiden who's just like a giant mess of a person he's insane (laughs) uh and then there's ryan and ryan is he's the baby bell he's in high school in priest uh and then you get a little bit of a mention of him in center you know sean talks about him being in college and then uh in saint they he's kind of at the end of his college career and uh it's just a catastrophe as well they're like He's probably in a pile of cheerleaders and apple bongs right now. So <laughs> I would say Ryan in sort of archetype sense is closest to Sean. Uh, he might be a little bit of a, an adorable dirtbag, bag, uh, but hopefully in a good way. So his book will be the next coming in the pre-series. Uh, I'm kind of on like a three-year schedule with these. So I think it'll probably be, let's see, thing came out in 2021. So I think it'll probably be like 2024. Uh, And then the very last book in the pre-series will be uh, Father Jordan Brady, who is Father Bell's confessor.
1: Oh, I'm so excited for that because he was such an interesting and unique. I was like, I want to know more about this man.
2: Yes, he does. He has a cameo uh, in, well, he actually has cameos in a lot of places, but his biggest cameo is in Saint. He's just shows up in France looking like a model priest because um, he's so polished and handsome. Uh, and so, but he, I'm saving him for last because I mention in priest, I make this sort of offhand comment that he talks to angels. And this is like, this is an example of me writing a standalone being like, I'll just write whatever, whatever. <laughs> and then having to deal with the consequences yeah. of it. So <laughs> I accidentally wrote this mystic character. So I'm kind of like, I don't know how I'm going to get inside of his head exactly. Cause I- I'm not a mystic myself, but I am excited to write it, and hopefully, it'll
1: be very sexy. Oh, that's we with bated breath. (laughs) Bated breath.
3: So excited now, even more so.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Talking about all the Bell brothers and their stories. um, Who, as the writer, which one is your favorite of the Bell brothers? Well, you know you're not
2: supposed to pick favorites of your children. But I, <laughs> I think that Sean is actually my favorite. Um Aiden is the most like me. and so Saint was like a really gorgeous book to write because I was able to give <laughs> fictional me this like journey through like lavender, drinking craft beer, and all that stuff um but Sean is almost the exact opposite of me, and he just has so much voice that, he, writing him is effortless. Even when he's making cameos and other books, like when he's, you know, kind of showing up in Saint to give Aiden a hard time. He's so himself that writing him is just so easy and fun. Um, and he's not like most of the heroes I write, because most of the heroes I write, you know, because I write taboo romance, I do kind of like to skew towards people who are good, who just found themselves, you know falling in love with their best friend's wife or whatever, you know, (laughs) like, and that, cause to me, that makes it interesting. Cause like, you know, if you're a creepazoid and you fall in love with your best friend's wife, like, okay, well that seems like, that's not a very interesting story. Um, but I, Sean is one of my really like, I don't want to say amoral, but he's definitely like a little bit, uh, more gray. Yeah. 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 He's a little bit on the wild side and uh, a little bit more selfish a little bit more um dirty and so he was just he was just a lot of fun to write
1: oh that's awesome
0: Britt and Mia haven't met Sean and Aiden yet. I think Britt will really love Sean. I I started it. I'm waiting for
1: it to come in the mail. I have started it. We're finishing it tonight. I'm telling (laughs) you.
0: I am an Aiden Adoree. I've been foaming at the mouth since I read it in September, telling them, like, you've got to read this. You don't understand. I was the same way with Priest. It took a while to get them to to, uh, read Priest, but I was like, trust me, you won't regret it. (laughs) We lured you to the dark side.
1: (laughs) Well, Becca has lured us in many different places. You should,
3: the conversations we have that come mainly from this one. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Like she, she got me with these ones. She's like, it's almost like a, like a sexy Mr. Darcy. I'm like, okay. Oh yeah. You know, I'm grabbing that. I am, I am, I am obsessed with Pride and Prejudice like I know it's basic of me to say but it was like this is my all-time favorite book so hearing that I'm just like um yes we're we're taking that we're getting those yep
0: so we we know we're going to get more in the pre-series along the way do we do we have to kind of wait until 2024 or are there any other Sierra Simone books coming out to kind of hold us over until then <laughs>
2: Yes. So yeah, you can't get rid of me that easily. So um, I wrote a, a trilogy that was sort of a kinky queer retelling of King Arthur. And it was called New Camelot. Uh, the first book is American Queen. And it's sort of like, you know, it's set in like contemporary world. So instead of like a king and a knight and a queen, it's uh, the president, the first lady and the vice president. And it's sort of like, what if King Arthur to your Lancelot all fell in love with each other uh and then we love a a throuple
0: we love (laughs) a throuple
2: love a throuple so it's not a love triangle everyone I promise uh everyone all the swords cross and everything. So, <laughs> um, so I wrote that and I just had such a great time that I have been wanting to write something similar, which is a retelling of Mark Tristan and Isold, um, which is also very kinky and queer. Yeah. So for anyone who watched James Franco cry on a beach in 2007 <laughs> or whatever, mm-hmm. it's that terrible movie. Um, this is, yeah, it's going to be contemporary and it's sort of set in the same universe as *New Camelot*, but you won't have to have read *New Camelot* to read this series. And the first book is called *Salt Kiss*, and it's coming out next summer.
1: Oh, that's exciting! Yeah, can we can we add it to our TBRs already? Is it already yeah, on Goodreads? Yeah, I don't know if it's on Goodreads yet. Yeah. <laughs> but hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. All right, we usually end the episode asking our guests to give us their maybe three to five recommendations of something that they really enjoy, they're listening to. Uh, So do you have any book recommendations for our listeners who maybe enjoy the spicier side of life? Oh, yes.
2: Okay, let me see what I'm reading now. Um, I am in the middle of a book. This is a taboo romance. Um, It's called What Was Meant to Be by QB Tyler. And it is a father's best friend romance. So this is her father's best friend. And they had a forbidden love affair. And she he left town because he was like, this is never going to work. And in the meantime, she's gotten engaged. And then he comes back and he's like, No, we're going to pick up where we left off. So it's very sexy, very forbidden. Um, And then I'm also reading a book called this is not taboo. It's called road to fire by Maria Luis. And it is a contemporary royals bodyguard romance and so it's like set in the UK but there's like a different kind of royal family and this bodyguard uh, has been born to a family of bodyguards who protect the royal family like that's their generational legacy Um, but the king has just been assassinated and the young queen is like she's like a baby bird she's like totally helpless uh and so it's up to saxon priest who doesn't really know how he feels about the monarchy anymore to keep her safe it's very sexy very dangerous so if you like a little bit of like suspense with your romance too it's a really good one um and then gosh i feel like i just read one that blew my mind oh this is an old one but this is for anyone who likes a slow burn uh it's called the wall of winnipeg and me by mariana zapata and it is like a grumpy sunshine sports romance uh slow burn i mean i'm talking like very slow so like don't don't go in expecting like a eyes wide shut or anything and then <laughs> <laughs> but it is so compulsively bingeable I don't think I've read a book that fast in months like I and I I don't even know why because I don't normally love a sports romance but I was just turning the pages like I could not get enough of her writing so highly recommend Mariana Zapata
1: it's so funny that you mentioned Mariana because our uh, audio engineer V is obsessed and oh. she has been trying to get me to read the Winnipeg For series reason With With four months. So I guess I'm just going to have to move that to the top of the TBR pile.
3: That name sounds so familiar too. So some sports for they hit differently. They just do. Not every, (laughs) not everyone. Some are just like uh, cringe, like no thanks. But some of them are just...
2: I know. And I don't normally read. I mean, I will say, like, uh, if you can't tell by all the books behind me and how much I've chattered about God and faith, like, <laughs> I'm a little bit of a nerd. And so I don't always go for, like, jock types and fiction. Uh, but man, this this guy in Winnipeg, he really did it for me.
1: <laughs> awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us today, Sierra. We really appreciated you taking time out of your day to chat with us about Priest, about god about religion about romance it it was really a pleasure to have you and we cannot wait to see what is next for you um as a last aside you want to just tell everyone where they can find you online yes so
2: um i will preface this by saying i'm very bad about answering dms or anything so if you ever have any questions or just want to say hi. The best way to get to me is by my email. It's simone at gmail.com. Uh, I am also bad at answering my email, but I do eventually get to them. So it might be a year, but I'll get to them. Unlike my Instagram DMs, which I've just sort of like left to the wolves. Um, but I do use my Instagram account uh, to post on. So you can find me there at the sierra simone. Uh, I'm also on Facebook. And if you are a fan, I have a Facebook fan group called The Lambs, Sierra Simone's Lambs, where you can go in and, you know, people will post like here's what i think father bell would look like without a shirt you know those kind of things
1: (laughs) i love it the best things (laughs) awesome well we'll make sure to put those in the show notes i hope you have yourself a wonderful evening thank you again for hanging out with us and i'll see you fabulous ladies next week
2: (laughs) yeah thanks for having me
1: want more from the bookish bitches?
3: Follow us on TikTok at Drinking ink Pod Official for updates regarding our newest episodes, releases, and behind-the-scenes chaos, or send us an email at DrinkingInkPodcast at gmail.com.
0: You can find us on all streaming platforms like Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also follow our hosts on their personal accounts located in the show notes, along with recommended reading
1: lists and all the books we mentioned in today's episode. Stay thirsty, friends.